Welcome to the February 2014 Respiratory Care Podcast. This is Dean Hess, editor of the journal, along with Sarah Moore, assistant editor. We have another full issue. So Sarah, let's get started. Our editor's choice paper this month is by Sun and colleagues, and its title is High Frequency Oscillatory Ventilation versus Synchronized Intermittent Mandatory Ventilation Plus Pressure Support in Preterm Infants with Severe Respiratory Distress Syndrome. The purpose of the study was to compare the efficacy and safety of High Frequency Oscillatory Ventilation, or HFOV, and Synchronized Intermittent Mandatory Ventilation, or SIMV, plus pressure support in preterm infants with severe RDS. 366 eligible preterm infants were randomly assigned to treatment with HFOV or SIMV plus pressure support. Surfactant was applied if PaO2 to FiO2 ratio was less than 200 millimeters mercury after two hours of ventilation. Primary outcomes were mortality or incidence of BPD. Secondary outcomes were duration of ventilation and hospitalization, surfactant requirements, pneumothorax, retinopathy of prematurity stage 2 or higher, and neurodevelopment at 18 months of corrected age. Survival and complete outcome data were available for 288 infants at 18 months of corrected age. The incidence of death or BPD was significantly higher in the SIMV plus pressure support group. The duration of mechanical ventilation and hospitalization was shorter and the incidence of surfactant requirement and retinopathy of prematurity was lower in the HFOF group. Moderate or severe neurological disability was less frequent in the HFOF group than in the SIMV plus pressure support group at 18 months. The combination of HFOV and surfactant dramatically reduced negative outcomes in preterm infants with severe RDS. The authors concluded that initial ventilation with HFOV in preterm infants with severe RDS reduces the incidence of death and BPD and improves long-term neurodevelopment outcomes. The effects of primary ventilation mode on BPD and long-term neurodevelopmental outcomes are controversial. Sun et al. compared HFOV and SIMV with pressure support in preterm infants with RDS. They found that initial ventilation with HFOV and preterm infants with severe RDS reduced the incidence of death and BPD and improved long-term neurodevelopmental outcomes. As Wilson points out in his editorial, given the dramatically different results from previous studies comparing HFOV and conventional mechanical ventilation, this study is likely to be met with skepticism in the neonatal respiratory care community. Our next paper by Gupta et al. is The Effect of a Mechanical Ventilation Discontinuation Protocol in Patients with Simple and Difficult Weaning Impact on Clinical Outcomes. These authors sought to determine whether the utilization of a respiratory therapist-driven mechanical ventilation weaning protocol is associated with improvement in clinical outcomes in subjects with simple versus difficult weaning. This was a retrospective analysis of prospectively collected data obtained during a quality improvement project. The authors collected data from 803 mechanically ventilated consecutive patients admitted to the ICU of an academic tertiary care hospital. 
They compared an RT-driven weaning protocol to a physician-driven weaning strategy. Of the 803 patients, 651 with simple weaning and 131 with difficult weaning were included in the analysis. In the subjects with simple weaning, 79% were weaned with the RT-driven protocol. Among the difficult weaning subjects, 77% were liberated with the RT-driven protocol. A multivariate analysis that included acute physiology and chronic health evaluation too, body mass index, and type of primary ICU team under which the subjects were admitted revealed a significant difference in ventilator-free days at 28 days, which supports the RT-driven protocol over the physician-driven strategy. Specifically, the RT-driven protocol increased ventilator-free days by 21% and 68% among subjects with simple and difficult weaning, respectively. A multivariate analysis of ICU mortality and extubation failure found no significant difference between the RT-driven protocol and the physician-driven strategy. The RT-driven weaning protocol increased ventilator-free days among subjects with simple and difficult weaning with no significant differences in ICU mortality or extubation failure. In this paper, the authors sought to determine whether the utilization of a respiratory therapist-driven mechanical ventilation weaning protocol is associated with improvement in clinical outcomes in subjects with simple versus difficult weaning. They found that the RT-driven weaning protocol increased ventilator-free days among subjects with simple and difficult weaning with no significant differences in ICU mortality or extubation failure. Kanoff reminds us that if we want to stay the course with evidence-based medicine, we must find ways to implement and standardize our practice of it. Protocols serve this purpose well but still require the input from the entire ICU team without compromising care or clinical judgment. Predictors of Reintubation in Critically Ill Patients is by Mew et al. The authors created a prediction model for the need for reintubation, which incorporates variables importantly contributing to extubation failure. This was a cohort study of 2007 endotracheally intubated subjects who required ICU admission at a tertiary care center. Data collection included demographic, hemodynamic, respiratory, and neurological variables preceding extubation. Data were compared between subjects extubated successfully and those who required re-intubation, using bivariate logistic regression models, with the binary outcome re-intubation and the baseline characteristics as predictors. Multivariable logistic regression analysis with robust variants was used to build the prediction model. Of the 2007 subjects analyzed, 19% required reintubation. In the bivariate analysis, admission SAPS2 score, minute ventilation, breathing frequency, oxygenation, number of prior spontaneous breathing trials, rapid shallow breathing index, airway secretion suctioning frequency and quantity, heart rate, and diastolic blood pressure differ significantly between the extubation success and failure groups. In the multivariable analysis, higher SAPS2 score and suctioning frequency were associated with failed extubation. 
The area under the receiver operating characteristic curve was 0.68 for failure at any time and 0.71 for failure within 24 hours. However, prior failed spontaneous breathing test, minute ventilation, and diastolic blood pressure were additional independent predictors of failure at any time, whereas oxygenation predicted extubation failure within 24 hours. The authors concluded that a small number of independent variables explains a substantial portion of the variability of extubation failure and can help identify patients at high risk of needing reintubation. Assessment of a patient's readiness for removal of the endotracheal tube in the ICU is based on respiratory, airway, and neurological measures. However, nearly 20% of patients require reintubation. These authors created a prediction model of the need for reintubation and found that a small number of independent variables explain a substantial portion of the variability of extubation failure. The authors of a related editorial write that the timing of extubation is crucial because both a delayed and a premature discontinuation from mechanical ventilation are associated with an increased mortality. Thus, a prediction model for extubation success is welcome. Next, we have the paper, Outcomes of Patients Treated with Non-Invasive Ventilation by a Medical Emergency Team on the Wards by Khalid and colleagues. Whether it is safe for a medical emergency team to start NIV in patients on the general ward with respiratory distress remains unclear. These authors evaluated 1,123 medical emergency team calls in 30,217 ward patients between January 2009 and June 2011 from the prospectively maintained medical emergency team database in their tertiary care hospital. Subjects transferred to the ICU at the end of a medical emergency team call were excluded. The remaining ward subjects were divided into two groups, those who were versus those who were not initiated on NIV by the medical emergency team. The primary outcome was endotracheal intubation or ICU transfer within 48 hours of medical emergency team activation. Secondary outcome measures were 28-day mortality and ICU mortality. 238 medical emergency team subjects met the study criteria, and 109 immediate ICU transfers were excluded. Of the remaining 129 ward subjects, 54 were in the NIV group and 75 in the non-NIV group. The NIV group subjects were sicker. Subjects with pulmonary edema, COPD exacerbation, or asthma exacerbation were more, and with pneumonia, less likely to be placed on NIV. The primary outcome was reached in 3.7% of the NIV subjects and 16% of the non-NIV subjects. There was no significant difference between the groups in 28-day mortality or ICU mortality. The authors concluded that in selected ward patients, especially those with COPD or pulmonary edema, NIV can be safely initiated by a medical emergency team. Initiation of NIV on the wards is not universally accepted. Medical emergency teams are intended to provide acute care and monitoring to deteriorating patients on the general wards. Whether it is safe for a medical emergency team to start NIV in ward patients is unclear. 
These authors found that in patients with COPD or pulmonary edema, NIV could be safely initiated by a medical emergency team. Polysomnograph Chart View by Patients, a new educational strategy to improve CPAP adherence and sleep apnea therapy, is by Falcone and colleagues. They tested the hypothesis that polysomnograph chart viewing by patients would improve CPAP adherence. A controlled parallel study group was performed A controlled parallel group study was performed with 206 newly diagnosed obstructive sleep apnea syndrome patients randomized into two groups, a standard support group and an educational support group. Each educational support group subject viewed two consecutive polysomnograms on the computer screen, the first recorded during a standard diagnostic overnight polysomnography and the second during a full night polysomnography with nasal CPAP. The subject's attention was drawn only to the flow and oxyhemoglobin saturation curves. Clinical outcomes were assessed via polysomnography at CPAP initiation and after 1, 3, and 12 months. After 12 months of CPAP, 76% of the educational support group and 52% of the standard support group returned for a follow-up visit. Statistical significance was reached already after one and three months. Moreover, CPAP use, measured as hours of use per night, was higher in the educational support group at each control visit. The authors concluded that polysomnograph chart viewing by obstructive sleep apnea patients can increase CPAP adherence as evaluated by rate of return for the follow-up visit and mean nightly CPAP use. CPAP is currently the treatment of choice for obstructive sleep apnea syndrome, but adherence to therapy is poor. Many educational trials have been proposed to increase CPAP adherence. These authors found that this strategy in patients with OSA could increase CPAP adherence as evaluated by rate of return for a follow-up visit and mean nightly CPAP use. Our next paper is Prediction of Pneumonia 30-Day Readmissions, a single-center attempt to increase model performance by Mather et al. They attempted to increase model performance with the addition of variables found to be of benefit in other studies. From 133,368 admissions to a tertiary care hospital from January 2009 to March 2012, the study cohort consisted of 956 index admissions for pneumonia using the Centers for Medicare and Medicaid Services definition. The authors collected variables previously reported to be associated with 30-day all-cause readmission, including vital signs, comorbidities, laboratory values, demographics, socioeconomic indicators, and indicators of hospital utilization. Separate logistic regression models were developed to identify the predictors of all-cause hospital readmission 30 days after discharge from the index pneumonia admission for pneumonia-related readmissions and for pneumonia-unrelated readmissions.
Of the 965 index admissions for pneumonia, 15.5% of subjects were readmitted within 30 days. The variables in the multivariate model were significantly associated with 30-day all-cause readmission were male sex, three or more previous admissions, chronic lung disease, cancer, median income less than $43,000, history of anxiety or depression, and hematocrit. The authors concluded that the addition of socioeconomic status and healthcare utilization variables significantly improved model performance compared to the model using only the CMS variables. Existing models developed to predict 30-day readmission for pneumonia lack discriminative ability. Mather and colleagues attempted to increase model performance with the addition of variables found to be of benefit in other studies. It is interesting that they found that the addition of socioeconomic status and healthcare utilization variables significantly improved their model's performance compared to the model using only the Centers for Medicare and Medicaid Service Variables. Effectiveness of Controlled Breathing Techniques on Anxiety and Depression in Hospitalized Patients with COPD, a Randomized Clinical Trial, is by Valenza et al. The authors conducted a randomized clinical study with 46 male subjects, aged 67 to 86 years old, hospitalized with acute COPD exacerbation. Subjects were randomly and equally divided into a controlled group and a controlled breathing intervention group. The authors measured baseline and post-intervention dyspnea, anxiety and depression, quality of life, maximum inspiratory and expiratory pressure, hand grip strength, and sleep quality. The cohort had high dyspnea and low overall quality of life. Controlled breathing techniques significantly improved dyspnea, anxiety, and mobility. All the measured variables improved in the intervention group. The control group had poorer values in all the variables after the hospitalization period. The authors concluded that controlled breathing exercises improve anxiety and depression in patients hospitalized for COPD exacerbation. Anxiety and depression are frequent comorbidities in patients with COPD. Breathing techniques can improve anxiety and depression in patients hospitalized for COPD exacerbation. These authors found that controlled breathing exercises improve anxiety and depression in patients hospitalized for COPD exacerbation. Next, we have the paper, In Vitro Evaluation of Positive Expiratory Pressure Devices Attached to Nebulizers by Berlinski. He hypothesized that this practice alters the aerosol characteristics and patient dose. He compared the aerosol characteristics and patient dose of nebulized albuterol from two types of nebulizers, alone, and when connected to different PEP and vibratory PEP devices. Three units of a continuously operated nebulizer, the Updraft 2 OptiNeb, and three units of a breath-enhanced nebulizer, the LC+, were tested alone and connected to PEP devices. Aerosol characteristics were evaluated with a cooled cascade impaction technique. The nebulizers were loaded with 2.5 mg to 3 ml albuterol solution and operated for 4 minutes at 6 liters per minute. 
Patient dose was evaluated with simulating breathing patterns for a child, small adult, and large adult. Albuterol was assayed via spectrophotometry. Connecting the LC Plus to the PEP devices did not change the aerosol characteristics or patient dose. Connecting the Updraft 2 OptiNeb to PEP devices significantly reduced the mass median aerodynamic diameter from 4.13 microns to 3.72 microns with EasyPEP, 1.24 microns with Acapella Choice, and 1.22 microns with Acapella Duet. The total amount of albuterol captured by the impactor decreased when connected to either acapella choice or acapella duet, with 17 to 25 percent retained in the PEP devices. Patient dose decreased by 76 percent to 84 percent when connected to acapella choice and acapella duet, respectively. The author concluded that concomitant use of nebulizer and PEP or vibratory PEP devices that obstruct the aerosol pathway significantly decrease the aerosol particle size and the patient dose. Patients with cystic fibrosis perform airway clearance techniques and receive nebulized medications on regular basis. Some PEP devices allow concomitant administration of aerosol. Berlinski hypothesized that this practice alters the aerosol characteristics and patient dose. He found that concomitant use of nebulizer and PEP or vibratory PEP devices that obstruct the aerosol pathway significantly decrease the aerosol particle size and the patient dose. This is important for therapists to appreciate when implementing this therapy. Importance of Inhaler Device Use Status in the Control of Asthma in Adults The Asthma Inhaler Treatment Study is by Yildiz on behalf of the Asthma Inhaler Treatment Study Group. This study was designed to evaluate inhaler technique and the role of education in relation to asthma control among patients with persistent asthma in Turkey. 572 patients with persistent asthma were included in this non-interventional observational registry study conducted across Turkey. Data on the effective and correct use of inhaler devices were collected via the Ease of Use for Inhaler Device Questionnaire to patients and physicians. Asthma control was better, with significant improvement in technique and decrease in basic errors to the range of 0 to 1, regardless of the inhaler type. Overall, the most common basic error associated with inhalation maneuvers was failure to exhale before inhaling through the device. There was concordance between patients and physicians in the ratio of correct inhaler technique only for spray type inhalers. The authors concluded that close follow-up with repeated checking of the patient's inhaler technique and correction of errors each time by a physician seemed to be associated with a significant decrease in the percent of patients who make basic errors in inhalation maneuvers and device-independent errors and with better control of persistent asthma. There is no debate that proper education and training in correct inhalation technique has a substantial role in the achievement of optimal therapeutic benefit and asthma control. 
In this study, it was found that close follow-up with repeated checking of the patient's inhaler technique and correction of errors was associated with a significant decrease in the percent of patients who make basic errors in inhalation maneuvers and device-independent errors. This was associated with better control of persistent asthma. Assessment of central airway obstruction using impulse oscillometry before and after interventional bronchoscopy is by Handa and colleagues. They assess the correlations between impulse oscillometry measurements, symptoms, and type of airway narrowing before and after interventional bronchoscopy, and whether impulse oscillometry parameters can discriminate between fixed and dynamic central airway obstruction. 20 consecutive patients with central airway obstruction underwent spirometry, impulse oscillometry, computed tomography, dyspnea assessment, and bronchoscopy before and after interventional bronchoscopy. The collapsibility index was calculated using morphometric bronchoscopic images during quiet breathing. Variable central airway obstruction was defined as a collapsibility index of greater than 50%. Fixed central airway obstruction was defined as a collapsibility index of less than 50%. The degree of obstruction was analyzed with computed tomography measurements. After interventional bronchoscopy, all impulse oscillometry measurements significantly improved, especially resistance at 5 Hz and reactance at 20 Hz. Changes in dyspnea score correlated with resistance at 5 Hz. The difference between the resistance at 5 Hz and the resistance at 20 Hz and the reactance at 5 Hz, but not with spirometry measurements. The type of obstruction also correlated with dyspnea score and showed distinct impulse oscillometry measurements. The authors concluded that impulse oscillometry measurements correlate with symptom improvements after interventional bronchoscopy. Spirometry is used to physiologically assess patients with central airway obstruction before and after interventional bronchoscopy, but is not always feasible in these patients, does not localize the anatomic site of obstruction, and may not correlate with the patient's functional impairment. Impulse oscillometry may overcome these limitations. These authors found that impulse oscillometry measurements correlate with symptom improvements after interventional bronchoscopy. Impulse oscillometry might be useful to discriminate variable from fixed central airway obstruction. I will now briefly summarize the remaining original research papers in the February issue. Odo et al. compared the ability of seven ICU ventilators and three dedicated NIV ventilators to compensate for leaks during simulated pediatric NIV. They found that leak compensation in NIV for pediatric use could partially compensate for leaks, but varies widely among ventilators as well as simulated patient weight and lung mechanics. Patients with COPD have reduced exercise tolerance associated with dyspnea. This exercise intolerance is primarily due to impaired ventilatory mechanics, but is also associated with a combination of factors, including inefficient gas exchange, lactic acidosis at a low work rate, and exercise-induced hypoxemia. 
The study by Makura and colleagues aimed to characterize life-threatening factors such as hypoxemia, acidosis, and sympathetic activation during exercise in these patients. They found that subjects with the most severely reduced exercise capacity had the characteristics of exercise-induced hypoxemia, sympathetic overactivity, and progressive respiratory acidosis at low-intensity exercise. Z et al. developed models to quantify the growth of human nasolaryngeal airways at early ages and to evaluate the impact of that growth on breathing resistance and aerosol deposition. They found that age effects are significant in both breathing resistance and micrometer particle deposition. The image computational fluid dynamics coupled method provides an efficient and effective approach in understanding patient-specific airflows and particle deposition, which have important implications in pediatric inhalation drug delivery and respiratory disorder diagnosis. Patients with COPD have an increased risk of cardiovascular disease and increased cardiac mortality. Carotid femoral pulse wave velocity is a validated measure of arterial stiffness, a well-recognized predictor of adverse cardiovascular outcomes, and offers higher predictive value than classical cardiovascular risk factors. Sinarca and colleagues investigated the association between COPD and arterial stiffness using carotid femoral pulse wave velocity. Their results suggest that arterial stiffness is increased in subjects with moderate and severe COPD than in those with mild to moderate COPD. Wang et al. investigated how RTs in Taiwan perceive the implementation of evidence-based practice. Unfortunately, they found that evidence-based practice is not widespread among RTs in Taiwan and identified important factors in the implementation of evidence-based practice. This month, we publish a systemic review and meta-analysis on beta agonists for the treatment of acute lung injury. Our case reports are of successful long-term airway stabilization with a modified pacifier in a syndromic infant and non-cardiogenic pulmonary edema and life-threatening shock due to calcium channel blocker overdose. Our teaching cases of a pilot balloon malfunction caused by endotracheal tube bite blocker. To receive the contents of this and past issues of the journal, visit our website at www.rcjournal.com. There you can also subscribe to receive podcasts of future issues. Thank you.